Welcome to the first in a special series of podcasts entitled Designing the Future with Jim Morgan. Jim is a senior advisor at the Lean Enterprise Institute and the founder of its Lean Product and Process Development Initiative. Jim's latest book is called Designing the Future, which was co-authored with Jeff Liker and is now available on Lean.org. Before joining LEI, Jim spent more than 30 years in the industry as a product development leader, including serving as a global engineering director at Ford during their product-led transformation under CEO Alan Mulally. Today, Jim Morgan will be talking about passion with Dave Parasek, the chief engineer behind the 2015 Ford Mustang, and is also the subject of the documentary A Faster Horse, now streaming on Netflix. So let's get into the Designing the Future podcast special with Jim Morgan and Dave Parasek. Take it away, Jim. Passion is a crucial leadership characteristic uh, that we don't talk nearly enough about. Passion for product, passion for creating new value, passion for your customer, and a deep passion for your team. It's an essential fuel that powers great development. It's what helps keep you going when things get tough, and it helps to energize and align your team. In fact, today's guest believes that a lack of passion is unforgivable in a product leader. This podcast is a real treat for me. Dave Parasak and I have been friends for probably uh, 15 years now. Nobody embodies passion for product and passion for his team more than Dave does. And few leaders use passion to energize and align their teams the way Dave does. I've had the privilege to really watch him mature as a leader and grow into one of the best chief engineers and development leaders that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Uh, Dave was chief engineer of the hugely successful 2015 Mustang, and then went on to turn around a really moribund uh, Ford performance organization, and is now an engineering director uh, at Ford Motor Company. Dave, welcome to the podcast, and thanks a ton for joining me. Oh, Jim, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so you uh, inherited a product that was really getting crushed in the marketplace. Um, Camaro had virtually eclipsed Mustang and even Challenger was uh, gaining ground on you. Um, and coupled with the fact that Mustang and F-Series are really the crown jewels of Ford Motor Company, uh, there must have been a ton of pressure from both inside and outside uh, to get this product right. And uh, some product leaders might have succumbed to that pressure, but as I recall, you actually used that pressure to help energize the team uh, and channeled it to make the product uh, more successful. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that, how you thought about that, and, uh, and how you, you know, sort of rallied the team around uh, the importance of this new product? Yeah, I like how you say energize the team. There was a lot of pressure. We, uh, we uh, as you remember, Jim, because you were here, we actually took a big gamble as a company because, as you mentioned, the Mustang and F-150 are the crown jewels of the company. And you remember that we took we took the opportunity to revamp both of them at the exact same time and in a huge way. We were going to take the F-150 and turn it into all aluminum. And then we took the Mustang and we were going to celebrate our 50th anniversary and really reclaim what we knew was ours. And so if you think about it, uh, there was a, even a few times when a couple of us looked at each other and went, holy cow, we're, we're really doing this. <laughs> I remember. I have the scars to remind me. <laughs> but I think that, you know, that just drove the passion was, I mean, that, listen, we, 
everybody at Ford, the engineers are, they want to be a part of a winning team. And so they want to be a part of the F-150 or the Mustang. And so and when you have passion like myself, it's, it's not that hard to find the engineers who want to be a part of something like that and something special. And so, yeah, you know, definitely we were able to motivate the team based on the excitement around, you know, going after a 50th anniversary Mustang. And like I said, we wanted to reclaim what we knew as ours, which was the best selling uh, sports car in the world. And that was Mustang kind of lost its way for a little bit. We kind of brought it back as we were approaching 2015, but we knew that 2015 was our opportunity to put the stake in the ground and reclaim what was ours. And clearly uh, you and the team were successful the first year out, uh, Mustang outsold Camaro by 37% and continues to outsell uh, Camaro and Challenger to this day. In fact, uh, I was just reading uh, not too long ago that uh, Mustang is now the best-selling sports car in the world. So uh, so mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, and I just read in the uh, – I forgot what article it was, but my buddy, uh, my, my bow tie buddy over there, Al Oppenheimer, who's the chief engineer for the Camaro, actually admitted in, in writing that they just did a better job than us. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I mean, we, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a big task to, to try to figure out what did the 2015 Mustang need to be? What is that all about? And how do you, you know, how do you determine what success looks like so that you can take something that has been so successful and continue it for the next 50 years? Um, so, you know, Jim, I mean, I've always said that I, my opportunity to be the chief engineer Mustang, a lot of people want to ask me about it, but I'm very humbled by it because I just was, I just had the opportunity to have a slice in time uh, being a curator of this legend. Um, and I'll never forget and I cherish the time that I spent uh, doing my part in keeping it going. But Mustang is a lot bigger than any one of us. And, and uh, it just was cool to be a part of it for sure. So that's, uh, that's a great point. Um, clearly, Dave, you're a Mustang guy. Uh, you grew up with Mustangs. You worked on Mustangs. Uh, you even proposed to your wife in a Mustang. <laughs> Um, but yet you took the time to go and see and understand the Mustang community today, um, to really understand the customer and how the Mustang delivers unique value to that customer. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience, maybe some things that confirmed your beliefs and also some things that maybe were surprises? Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I've, Mustang's been a part of my my whole life. Uh, as you said, I, I did propose in one, and I, you know, I just was I was a kid growing up with them. They were always they were always something that I aspired to own, and um, so yeah, it's it's always been a part of me. And I am a Mustang customer, but it's not something that I thought. You know, I wasn't designing the 2015 Mustang for Dave Parasek. I I had the opportunity to lead the team that needed to design this product for the millions of Mustang fans that are out there globally who have loved this product or 50 years. And Jim, you know, the kind of customer we're talking about, right? I mean, this customer, they, they think of this vehicle as if, as if it's a family member. I mean, they, they name their cars, right? <laughs> they, uh, you know, they tattoo Mustang on their arms. I mean, like these people live and breathe Mustang. And so, um, you know, if you think that, you know, uh, just because of your experience that, that you know, all there is to know, then I think you're going to fail. And I think that's, where maybe a lot of co uh, companies struggle. Uh, you know, I think if you're going to design a product that's going to be hugely successful, you need to understand the customer. 
And that doesn't mean that, you know, your marketing, uh, you know, normally if you look at the, the way the marketing guys line up the customer and they, they, they identify a target customer in a certain age and a certain, that's not understanding the customer. I'm talking about understanding the guy that cleans his car with a toothbrush, right? This is, this is what you need to do, no matter what product you're designing or selling or making, you, you need to truly be a part of the community and understanding the customer. And so, yeah, I went out to different shows. I went out to um, events. Uh, I really uh, was a part of that Mustang community and they accepted me into that community. Um, and, you know, you asked me wh what were maybe one of the surprises? What did, what, what did I get confirmed? And well, I'll tell you one of the huge surprises was when I went out West to California and we were doing an event out there and, you know, here I am the chief engineer of Mustang and I'm, feeling pretty good about that. And we're, we're in a, in an establishment where we're, we're kind of just talking about things. And, uh, when I told everybody what I did, I didn't get the response, Jim, that I had thought. Um, I actually got a response that shocked me, which was people could not believe that we were still building in their words, that pig. And what they meant by that was a V8 is, is not responsible. And they saw the car as kind of being an old school knuckle dragging, you know, V8 that, and I was, I was just taken aback. So I mm. probed a little bit more, right? Trying to figure out, did they love, did they see the car as sexy? Did they see the car as appealing? And was it just the fact that they thought it wasn't a responsible offering? And I found out that they did think the Mustang was sexy and they did think that it was cool, but they did not see it as something that they would even consider based on what I mentioned before, being sort of irresponsible to the environment and things like that. And Jim, I'll tell you what, I, I left that night, literally, I didn't even, um, we didn't make it through the night. I called back to some people in Dearborn and I said, when I land, we have to huddle the team. We've got to change the way we look at this product. And that did change the whole engine lineup for the 2015 Mustang. Wow, that's a great story. Um, and so this challenge to uh, balance maybe the Mustang traditionalists and a new generation of Mustang lovers, um, I, th I think is, uh, can be really difficult. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about that? Yeah, that was something that was the, one of the biggest challenges. Um, so, you know, when you think about how Mustang is going to survive, the world is changing fast. How is Mustang going to survive in this new world and how does it become relevant um, you look at the younger generation, they have a different view, you know, that you and I, Jim grew up, you know, smelling gasoline and working in the garage and getting dirty. And that's, that's not what the kids of today do. That doesn't mean that they don't love automobiles. Uh, I think they do still have the passion and the love for an automobile, but they don't look at the vehicle in the same way that you and I do. And with the technology today, you know, how do you bring that into the car? And how do you, how do you just look at this thing in a way that it stays relevant to those people that are now starting to get their driver's license. And so we, and at the same time, not alienate, obviously the very large community that has loved this vehicle for so long. And so the, one of the things that we did find, which I thought was pretty interesting was that the, the people that love the vehicle today, they're actually more elastic hmm. than the people that are, you're trying to actually conquest or, or the new people that you're trying to bring into the family. It was interesting. A lot of people thought that the that the current Mustang customer is going to be very rigid in what they wanted and how the vehicle had to look and what what engine offering. And what we found, Jim, was that wasn't the case. They actually, as long as you didn't lose the essence of Mustang, you didn't lose what makes a Mustang a Mustang. They were willing to stretch, and that was an eye opener for us because that opened up a whole new 
idea of what you could do for 2015 to make the car fresh and make it relevant, but yet not alienate the, the people who have loved it for so long. That's a great story, and it really shows the power of uh, going to see and understand yourself and not just trying to, uh, you know, sort of read reports or rely on your own instinct. Um, yeah, very powerful. One of the ways that I think Mustang delivers value, um, as you know, I'm a Mustang lover myself, is wow. that um, it delivers an emotional experience. There's a, there's a driving experience that comes from Mustang uh, that is, uh, is just awesome. Um, and also the look and feel of the Mustang. You know, how do you translate um, emotional experiences uh, to a product, right? How, how do you, how do you, um, you know, turn passion into form? I remember uh, one of the things uh, you saying during the development of the program is we don't do ugly. Um, <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you make that uh, translation? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I think that when you look at what the Mustang does for people, right, it makes them feel invincible. It makes them, it actually transforms them into almost a superhero in their own mind. Like when they get in that car and they start driving down the road, they feel like a different person. And so the, the, the way that you do that is you don't compromise. Number one, uh, you realize that every millimeter matters. And I mean that, and Jim, you know, because as the engineering director at the time, you and I had to have some difficult conversations about uh, some of the form that we were trying to put into the car. And I got a great story about that one too. But, um, you know, when you think about how you're going to get that passion, so I always say that you can look at a product and you can, I don't care if it's a toaster or if it's a, if it's a, an automobile or an airplane or whatever, you can look at a product and you can tell whether the team that worked on it was passionate or whether they were just doing their job. Because if the car, or in this case, it's a car, if the car looks like it's got a personality, if it looks like it's alive, and if it evokes that emotion, that team was passionate, man. Yeah. Right? And if you look at a product and you think, hmm, yeah, okay, guess what? They were just doing their job. Nobody really cared about that product. And I think that the way you get that passion in is, is that you do spend the time to understand Form is, you know, one of the things I think in our case, in the automotive industry, a lot of the engineers struggle with our, with our design studio, not because a design studio doesn't know how to do their job. They're very creative people. The issue is that engineers don't like when the design studio makes things tough. And I always encouraged that tension in the studio between the engineering team and the studio. Cause I always said that if we didn't have that tension, we probably didn't have a great product, right? Because if it was easy, then anybody could do it, and it's probably boring. I, I completely agree. In fact, I couldn't agree more. I think it takes a lot of conflict to make a great product, and I think that that uh, tension stretches the organization and, uh, and results in a much better product. So I, I am completely aligned on that. Um, and, in fact, uh, one of the things that I thought you were – um, incredibly effective at was uh, getting the organization uh, behind your vision for the product and and not in a coercive way but in an inspirational way and uh, two examples that I was involved in of course uh, you'll remember this are the uh, you know get, putting the wider hips uh, <laughs> on the Mustang that challenged our uh, press mm -hmm. shut height and of course the headlamps 
Um, I know you also uh, worked extremely hard on getting the uh, the engine sound uh, just right, and I'm sure with the powertrain team that was uh, was challenging as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about those experiences and how you use the you know again passion to uh, to enroll uh, people in your vision for delivering this great product? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. You talked about putting the hips on on the vehicle, and so if you look at the rear end of the of the Mustang, over the rear wheels, um, we had a great product, but it still was missing something. And I kept saying to the team, "She's missing something." Sorry, I refer to her as she, by the way. I hope that's okay. But um, I always said, you know, she's missing something, and then it it just hit us. We said she needs hips, and so we needed to to put some wider fenders in the back, uh, you know, quarter panels in the back, right, to cover those rear wheels and show the power. That, that, that exists in the Mustang and communicate that through the form. So when we were doing that, as you remember, Jim, uh, I came to you and asked for help. And, um, you know, you're a Mustang guy. Uh, and so you, you had the passion as well, but it took guys like us to go and push the envelope on, cause that was a no fees at first. We said right. we could do it. Right. Um, and then ultimately what happened was <laughs> I kept telling the manufacturing team, just tell me what it's going to take. Now, most chief engineers didn't want to hear the answer, but when you guys came back, there was a pretty hefty bill. As you said, the presses weren't, we couldn't even open them up enough to transfer the the, right. uh, the But you guys came back with the bill and I signed on the dotted line. Yep. Right? And when you look at what happened as a result of that, that just completely transformed that product. And getting the everybody aligned around that was, you know, um, you asked how you do it. I mean, I think... When I think passion is contagious. And so I believe that when you have a conviction and you have this passion and you believe so deeply in something, people just want to be a part of that. Like they, they just gravitate towards it. It's not that hard, I think, if you genuinely are passionate for a product, to get others around you to be similar, have that similar passion. Uh, and if they don't ultimately have the same passion, they will have a respect. And they will ultimately support what you want because they see the conviction and the dedication that you have. And they think, if this guy's that, then we're going to just do it. And I had a lot of people who would come into my office, Jim, and say, think they were going to say no to whatever I had just asked. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody would usually walk out going, I can't believe we're going to do this. But they walked out saying that because they felt the passion and they felt the conviction and they knew that I was going to be there to do whatever it took to make this work. And I think that's part of a chief engineer's job is to let people know that we're not going to let the barriers get in our way. You know, you said we don't do ugly. We don't do ugly. If it's ugly, we're not going to do it. Right. And, and sometimes when you when you have to do what you have to do, it's not a that's that in itself is ugly. Right. Meaning that maybe it costs a lot or maybe it delays the timing or maybe, you know, who knows, but I've always told the team, we're going to do the right thing and we're going to make the right decision. Cause Jim, I always say this, the wrong decision is in fact the wrong decision. Meaning that if you know that you're making a decision that just isn't quite the way it should be, it isn't the right one. You've made the wrong decision. Yep. Yep. Right. And I think too many chief engineers want to focus on, yeah, but that comes with this much cost or that comes with, oh my God, we're, we're going through a product now that I, I can obviously not disclose, but, but we're, we're, uh, we're developing a product right now. And the chief engineer of the program uh, was very concerned with how much money we were spending. 
And I am coaching this younger chief engineer. And I said, you have to trust me. The money will get sorted out. You're, we need to make the right decision. So fast forward now, Jim, we products ready to go to research. We just did research on it. We hit it out of the park. I mean, we came back from research, not having to change a single thing. That's impressive. And now we've worked on the cost such that the chief engineer walked into my office the other day and he looked at me and he said, don't tell anybody, but I'm $20 to the good. (laughs) (laughs) So it just goes to show that, you know, if you do the right thing for the product, then you can spend the rest of the time getting the timing and cost and everything else in the box, right? But back to your question is, it's when you're passionate and you can communicate that to people, they jump on board with you. And then the, then it's like a snowball going down the hill. The more people get on board and the more, and then it just keeps going. And then before you know it, the whole team is just immersed in this passion and this desire to, to win and to be the best. Yeah. And I think another thing that's really important is that it's not just talk, it's actions, right? So it's one thing uh, for you to say, uh, we we need this stance on this vehicle. We need to make these quarter panels in this way. Um, but then if you don't sign on the dotted line, uh, people are questioning your sincerity, right, your authenticity. And so when you uh, back up what you say with action, that builds trust with the team, right? A chief engineer um, you know, has a small group of direct reports in the automotive industry and an army of engineers that they need to rely on um, to get the job done. And a chief engineer's reputation uh, spreads through the community, as you know, um, quickly, and and they're judged by their actions. And I think that's part of what made you so successful is uh, you did find a way, your actions backed up your words, uh, and you built that level of trust with the rest of the organization. So I I think that uh, that was incredibly important. Well, you know, Jim, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate you saying that. And you, you said that privately to me before, and it really meant the world to me when you said it, because, you know, as a chief engineer who's going to back up his words, um, you're going to also find yourself in some uncomfortable situations. Um, and what I mean by that is, is especially in, in, a, in the corporate world, um, there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of of people that want to stand in the way, um, not necessarily for the wrong reasons, but just it ends up, they end up getting in the way. I'll just put it that way. And, um, you know, the political, uh, hits that you're going to take by, by doing the right thing and by signing on that dotted line, they can be pretty massive. And if you're not willing to stomach it, um, then, then you're going to fail. And, uh, I have never been afraid to make those stances. Um, but I will tell you that if I'm being honest about it, there's a couple of times that I thought that I was probably putting my job on the line. And for the product, uh, I was going to do it. It didn't matter to me. I don't know that everybody uh, is willing to make that type of commitment, but I truly, in all honesty, in all honesty, uh, was okay if I was going to end up not being employed because I was doing the right thing for the product and for the customer and. You know, that's a pretty, that's a, you've got to be pretty committed for that. For sure. And it's a trait you have in common with another chief engineer that I admire, a guy named Joe Sutter, who led the development of the uh, 747. Mm. And uh, he used to say, it's a good day to get fired. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's that kind of commitment, I think, that, um, you know, makes for truly great, great products. 
um, and any in developing any uh, you know great product, uh, there's a lot of difficulties that you experience. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it takes a ton of resilience, uh, what I call grit. Um, you know, shit's going to go wrong. Um, yep. And it's not, um, you know, what goes wrong that matters. It's how you react to that. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, some challenges that you had on the Mustang and, and what you did to, to overcome those difficulties? Yeah, we had a lot of challenges. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I'll never forget, Jim, is we were we were in the middle of the testing phase, and um, <laughs> and as you you say, shit goes wrong. So you know, stuff starts to fail, and things start to happen, and that's just normal product development stuff that you have to deal with. But uh, for some reason, I don't know if it's Murphy's law or what, it seems to all happen at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, when you're about ready to go in and see the seniors <laughs> about the status of the program. So anyway. Um, we, I'll never forget when we had a day where everything was going wrong uh, and the, the activity outside my office, people were lining up to, to continue to bring in bad news and it was getting quite hectic. And I walked out into the hallway and I looked at everybody and I said, hey, and everyone stopped and looked at me and I said, we take all problems just one at a time. <laughs> and I walked back in and I sat down, right? And I think what's interesting or what's important is you have to remain calm. I think as a chief engineer, you need to remember that you are the rock for the team. Yes, you're a human and yes, you're gonna have the emotions, but okay, it's an old cliche, but it's true. You can't let them see you sweat. The team looks to you for the confidence and for the inspiration and for the, are we okay? And if they think that you think that you're not okay, you've got problems on your hands, right? You could even have a mutiny on your hands. I mean, you have to realize that they're taking their cues from you. And so you have to just be the rock. You have to stay calm and realize, I always tell everybody, no matter what issue we're going to have here at the company, we've been around for over 100 years. It, there's nothing that this company hasn't seen or that it doesn't know how to do. And there's nothing that we can't do as people, whether it's, you know, so maybe it's going to take 100 people to get it done. Maybe it's going to take money to get it done. Maybe it's going to take another couple months to get it done. But there is no, you know, failure is not an option. It's just a matter of what is the best way to work through the issue? What, what is the right decision? And I think being very clear about where we're gonna go with this and how we're gonna attack it keeps the team calm and keeps progress going forward. The worst thing you can do is pause and have no progress. You've gotta stay moving forward, but you have to do it in a way that obviously is logical and makes sense. And so that's just kind of my, been my approach towards, you know, when we have big issues, I just break it down quickly, get to what I think is the right plan, and then start to communicate that plan to the team. And the team follows, they, they fall in line and follow suit. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's right on. And I think it is really consistent with another leader that we both admire, um, who remained uh, very calm, um, you know, throughout the sort of Ford uh, crisis that we went through, and that's uh, Mullally, of course. Mullally, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, that was uh, one of his uh, keys to success. If you remember, he used to say, uh, you know, no matter how painful it is on the way down, just remember that it's that much better, uh, you know, on the way up. And, uh, you know, try to keep people focused on moving forward uh, all the time. Well, the thing I liked about Alan as well is, you know, he used to say, put the issues on the table. We can't fix what we don't know. Exactly. You can't manage a secret, right? We can't manage a secret. 
And yeah. but that, that's true. And you know, Jen, that's one thing that I do encourage uh, when I do the uh, when I lead product development is I tell people all the time. In fact, I call it confession, and I <laughs> and, and everyone laughs when I say it. But but Jim, you'd be amazed. So you're in a meeting, and the meeting ends or getting ready to end, and you think you've covered everything. And then I always say, okay, guys, we are now for the next five minutes in confession. I said, so <laughs> what else do you want to talk to me about today? Knowing that there is no repercussion, I need to know what is out there. And you would be amazed at how many issues all of a sudden appear. And yeah. at the end of the day, it's creating that environment where they feel comfortable to put the issues out there. Like you say, you can't manage a secret. Put it out there. What is? What are we dealing with, guys? And then let's go get it as a team. Yeah, uh, completely aligned on that. And I, I love that term, uh, confession. It's uh, it's good for the soul, and it's uh, it's also good for the product. So, absolutely. Um, what uh, moments uh, stand out to you most from Mustang, good or bad, Dave? What what are the sort of the flashbulb memories you have from that program? Um, well, I mean, I think some of the good moments are uh, well, I mean, a couple of things. So when we when we started when we set the product up and it transferred over to me as the chief engineer, I didn't feel that the must that the, that the, uh, that, that it was set up for success to be a 50th anniversary Mustang. And so we went off, my team and I went off and, and, and established a list of things that we wanted to do that increased the budget pretty significantly. And you also remember a pretty, uh, important leader at the time, Mr. Derek Kuzak, who, uh, <laughs> I had to go back to and ask for, for more money. And you can imagine how that went over. Cause if you remember the time when we were actually doing the, the 50th anniversary Mustang, uh, the economy wasn't great. Um, the auto, yeah, everybody in the auto industry was struggling. And so to walk back in and say, I, we needed more money from what was already a significant budget, um, that didn't go over too well. But, uh, but I do remember that I had to go and visit Mr. Kuzak in his office several times. And you've probably had the pleasure of doing that too. <laughs> and he would drill you and make sure that you were thorough in your thought process. And then you, but once you convinced him that you had really thought this through and all that, we ultimately got Derek's authorization to increase the budget. And without that, Jim, we would not have had the car that we, that we have today. And so that was a pretty important time of the program. And I remember when I was going for that approval, everybody thought I was completely, I'd lost my mind that there was no way we were going to get that. And I felt, you know, that we we needed it, and so that is uh, that's a moment in time during the development that I'll I'll never forget. Um, you know, I think when we the first time we put a, our, our first mule together and we went out and and we drove it, um, I got a smile on my face because it felt good, but it had not it wasn't there yet, and uh, we, str we we struggled for a bit to get it right. And and another moment that I'll I'll never forget. If you remember, Jim, we did the Boss 302. And that was just a fantastic car. In fact, every time I get in mine, I just, I just get a huge smile when I drive that thing. But um, we were out in Arizona and we were doing some testing and some development work. And we had the, the 50th anniversary Mustang there, uh, still unknown to the world uh, yeah. that, that, that we had it. But um, we did a back-to-back -back with the Boss 302 and the 2015 Mustang. And the team was pretty proud of, of where they had gotten and tuned the Mustang, the, the, the 2015 Mustang. They had, where they had got it, they were pretty proud. And I got out of the car and I looked at everybody and I said, we're not there. And everyone, you should have seen the look on everyone's faces. And then I said, instead of sitting there telling them everything that was wrong, I took a different approach. I said, team, I'm gonna ask you a question and I want your honest answer. 
I said, if I told you that today was your last day and that you were going to get a chance for one last ride, ride of your life around this track, which car are you jumping in? The Boss 302 or the 2015 Mustang? And Jim, nobody had to say a word because we all knew what the answer was. That's and, I, awesome. and, and I said, guys, we're not there. They went back. They worked their tails off for the next month. They flew me back, flew back out to Arizona, and I got in the 2015 Mustang, and I got out, and I high-fived everybody because now we had a car. But it was that instead of beating on them about all things I thought was wrong, I just simply asked them which one they would rather drive. They knew the answer. They were motivated now to go back and to fix it. And they did it. That's a great story. And that's, uh, you know, that's leading through inspiration uh, instead of coercion. And uh, it's, that's a powerful lesson, I think, for every leader. Certainly something uh, I tried to practice and uh, that I've seen in the, in the best leaders that I've uh, come in contact. You know, you mentioned uh, Derek. Um, I also I thought he was, uh, you know, just a phenomenal product leader uh, for the organization, sort of in his quiet, uh, very thoughtful way. Um, also, uh, you know, contributed in a huge way to that program as well as the F-150 and, and other programs during that uh, sort of product-led revitalization. I thought he was another uh, really uh, key guy for sure. Well, and he was, and, you know, there's, there's, I think, something that's pretty important. So he was our lead of product development, and, I, and I, we all credit Derek during a very dark time for guiding us through and pulling us through all of that, and he was, he was definitely – uh, I don't know what we would have done without him. So I really am glad that he was here. But I will say one of the things that really impressed me, and, and, and you did the same thing that you, I don't know if you know this or not, but even though you're a Mustang guy, I was in your office one day and you said to me, you said, Dave, I love Mustang. I own a Mustang. I'm, I'm always going to, but I don't pretend to know the Mustang customer like you do. And Derek had the same thing. Derek had a, as you know, he, every product, he had a clear vision on what he wanted the product to be and to do and everything else. But when it came to the Mustang, he did not pretend to understand the Mustang customer. And he allowed me as the chief engineer, most of the times to make the final call. Yep. And I thought that was pretty cool. If you think about that as a leader, that he recognized that is, he was very intelligent. He was very connected with what a, what a good product was. And there was no doubt but he did not pretend to understand the Mustang more than I did, and he would default to me uh, 99% of the time. So I think that's a key part of leadership as well, is uh, understanding your role and where you contribute and, uh, you know, and balancing the organization. And so that uh, clear roles in leadership uh, you know, is, a, is another topic in the book, and, a, and I think another uh, important element uh, when you think about uh, leadership and management systems. Um, one interesting uh, question that I've thought a bit about, um, of course, they were filming a documentary during the development of the Mustang, uh, A Faster Horse. Um, what uh, effect did that have on you or the, the team as you, as you went through this process? Well, initially it had a huge effect because, boy, was that disruptive. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think what it did in hindsight was it actually reinforced the special project that people were involved with. 
that we had cameras that, uh, so Jim, I would walk in in the morning. I mean, it really was disruptive, right? I mean, I would walk in in the morning and they would strap, you know, the, the microphones on me and the cameras would be following me. And I literally couldn't go about doing anything without having people around. And I know that you at first people go, oh yeah, you know, wouldn't that be cool? No, it's really not. When you're trying to do your job, <laughs> so much to do, it's not. And then you would go into a meeting room where you're talking about secretive stuff and the people would almost recoil a little bit because you know, they didn't want to say something in front of the camera, right? Sure. So, so we had to get through all of that. But believe it or not, when they're here with you every single day for, they filmed for, I don't remember, nine, 10 months. It was a long time. Um, you ultimately forget about the cameras. And you're ultimately able to get back into your the way you just work. But what it always reinforced was that you are on something special that they are, I mean, they're filming every day of our lives that's how important this thing was. And I think it was hugely effective to keep that in front of the team, even in times of, you know, when, when, when things were tough and everyone was, you know, you'd always see those cameras and just think, man, we're doing something that is pretty big here. Yeah. I, and so, uh, it turned into a positive, but I imagine it could have been distracting, uh, certainly at least initially. Um, yeah, for all those reasons. Um, in fact, I remember one uh, moment in the video, um, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but your finance lead uh, says there's no more money, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and that point seems to happen to every single program. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. That was so. Uh, so that individual was my program manager, and uh, I think there's a distinct difference between a program manager and a chief engineer. And sometimes I think people think that they're uh, maybe like the program manager is like a, an assistant chief. That's not true. That's they're a great, two totally, point. great point. Yeah. Yeah. They're two totally different jobs. Right. So my job was to push the envelope, motivate the team, you know, uh, set the vision, uh, you know, uh, put the impossible out there and tell the team we're going to go get it. Uh, his job was to try to reel me in and keep, <laughs> and keep me somewhat in line to the financials and to some of the, you know, the, the things that we obviously have to, have to deliver. Um, so in that scene that you see, he is literally saying there is no more money because there at that time was no more money. Um, <laughs> but we had, uh, some knockout drag out, uh, behind closed doors arguments. So he and I were, were thick as thieves, like brothers, and, and we would behind closed doors, we would air it out, but we would always say, just like parents to their children, you cannot show a division, otherwise they will divide you, right? Mm. And so he and I would always have one voice coming out of my office. But in the office, it was, a, it, was, it was a safe zone to honestly hash out, to make sure we were always doing the right thing. And I, I didn't want, uh, I'm not afraid to be a dictator when I need to, but that's not how I like to lead and that's not how I think a good leader does lead. And so I wanted to make sure that I, he had a voice and that I was listening to him. And so. I can't tell you how many times, Jim, I would say, we're going to do this. It's the right thing for the car. And he would say, you are out of money, right? And and I would always tell him, I'll find the money. Don't worry about it. And so <laughs> we, we would go back and forth in that. And sometimes we would leave the office and he would shake his head and, and just think he's lost his mind, right? But uh, yeah, I think those are those are the realities of product development. I mean, I think that's, you know, we have to deliver. And I all of the programs that I have, even including the 2015 Mustang, at the, we always have what's called final status where you have to come in and now you have to tell everybody right. they've entrusted you with all of this money and now you have to come back and say, how did you do? And uh, you can't just say, hey, look, I got a great product and yeah, I missed the budget. You, you have to come back in and you have to 
show that you were responsible with the budget and, and also you achieved a great product and so on and so forth. And all of the programs I've ever managed, we've always delivered on what we needed to deliver on. But in those times of turmoil and when you're trying to make those right decisions, some of that is a bit of a gut call. You you need to know that you're going to go out on a, on, a, on a ledge a little bit, that you're going to yeah, I'm going to hang out and I, and I'm going to go over budget. And, and, uh, and why is that? Okay. Uh, it's only okay because I know that I'm going to put the energy in to go figure out how to offset what I just did. And, you know, you can't just go spend willy nilly and not, and not have a plan that that's ridiculous, but you also can't make those bad decisions back to what we talked about earlier. You need to make sure that you're making the right one. So yeah, that I actually love that part of the movie because, because he truly is stressed out saying there is no more money. Right. <laughs> Exactly. It was. It's. Uh, I. I thought it was very. It was uh, incredibly authentic and reminded me of uh, any number of programs we've uh, been involved in. Um, so Ford has uh, recently announced that it's uh, pulling out of the passenger car segment, with the exception of our Mustang. Um, could you imagine a Mustang? You know, growing from a single model to a brand with uh, with more variations. Well, I mean, I think it's big enough to do that. Um, I mean, I think that the Mustang brand is, if you think about it, Jim, it's, it's globally, it's recognized as one of the top, when you, when you go out and do research, you'll see that the, the horse is known globally. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people don't know, but the Mustang doesn't actually carry the Ford Oval on it. Um, so it's, uh, it's a strong brand. So could it do that? Sure, why not? I mean, I don't see why you couldn't leverage that. I think one of the things, you know, we said we weren't doing passenger cars, and I think there was a, a little, maybe a clarification that that should have been made. So, are we going to do the traditional sedan type car? The answer is no. But are we going to do what I call the car of tomorrow? The car, if you look at where we are in the in the auto industry, it's actually an exciting time, right? Because we're doing things like uh, crossovers and and sport utilities and uh, not just trucks. We're doing a lot of product right now that actually gets better fuel economy than the old sedans ever did. And so when we talk about, we're able to give people a better package, uh, you know, a better accommodation, um, a more usage by going to a CUV or SUV type style. That's what people want anyway. And we're able to do it and still deliver on fuel economy and everything else. So yeah, are we going to do passenger cars? Look, I always say that the average person divides vehicles into basically two groups. You either have a truck or you have a car. They, they know, you know, the CUV, SUV, we've created all those categories, but the average person sees it as a car or a truck. So it's not like Ford's getting out of doing cars, but we're not going to do the, 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 the traditional sedan type cars, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, one, uh, other sort of, uh, different question. Um, what would you see as the possible advantages or disadvantage to an all-electric Mustang? Well, I think there's a lot of advantages. I mean, I'm one of the guys who uh, think that uh, there is a place for that. Now, when, it might be the question, maybe that's the real question, but um, if you think about what electrification provides, it provides the very things that you and I as Mustang owners, Jim, want. We want the torque. We want the speed. We want the, I mean, if anybody has driven a capable electric vehicle, the instantaneous torque is unreal. And the fun factor is just through the roof. So I don't think that um, you have to deviate 
from what a Mustang is just because you introduce electricity. I think you can use it to deliver on what Mustang has always been about. Now, the trick on that is going to be, obviously, Mustang also is about the sound and everything else. And so, you know, you have to explore what does that really mean and, and how do you how do you authenticate um, an electric Mustang? But do I think there's a place in the future for that? I absolutely do. I think it would be an amazing product that um, that people would aspire to. Now, I think that's part of keeping Mustang relevant and part of keeping it going for the next 50 years. That doesn't mean that you throw the V8 out tomorrow or that you that you get rid of you know the, the internal combustion engine. But I do believe that electrification can do nothing but supplement and augment what is already a fantastic performing product. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of upside for sure. Um, back to this topic of uh, chief engineer, what do you think are the most important characteristics of a great chief engineer? Well, I mean, I think one of them is uh, for sure uh, being able to have a vision. Um, you have to be able to set the vision and the tone for the team. If you don't do that, then you're just you're getting whipsawed along the way and kind of meandering. And you have to be uh, the charismatic, you know, visionary that people are looking at going, yeah, I want to go with that guy. I want to go with, or woman, whatever, you know, I want to go with that person um, because man, I look what, look where they want to take us. Right. So you have to have that vision. You have to have uh, the conviction. You, you have to be dedicated to what you're, you can't say something and then not be dedicated to it. So, you, you have to have that. If you want people to follow you, you gotta be the real deal. Um, and then I think, you, you know, the passion obviously we've talked about is is probably number one, it's kind of all wrapped up in what I just said, but you, you've gotta be, the passion needs to exude from you. Um, when people talk to you, they gotta just feel it. And, and like I said, it's contagious. And I think if you and if you have, oh, and the only other thing I would, I would add to that is, is, so one of the things that, that the team brings back to me all the time is they love the way in which I trust the team. And in turn, the team trusts me. And I think that people miss a lot. The, the, the trust factor is huge. And if you wanna lead people, they have to trust you because there's times that you're gonna ask them to walk through fire or you're gonna ask them to jump off of a building or you're gonna ask them to whatever and they're gonna need to trust that what you're asking them to do and what you is it's going to work and it's the right thing and we're going to go do it and the only way you get that trust is by trusting the team and a lot of people say that they're going to trust the team but they don't mm-hmm. they they make the team come in and and they put them through all kind of i trust the team now does that mean that we never have a failure no of course not and when the team fails guess what they recognize their failure. They are also so disappointed that they let me down that they kick themselves in the rear end. I don't need to do it. And, and they will not make that mistake again. And so when you can build that, that reciprocal trust, it's unbelievable what it does for a team's effectiveness in getting the impossible done. That's a, that's a great point. Um, what advice would you give to a first-time chief engineer, Dave? <laughs> well, one would be don't be afraid. Um, I think that uh, too many chief engineers are so afraid of failure and and in um, the corporations, politics, and whatever that that they start off 
not being able to to build everything that we just talked about with the team. And so uh, you cannot be afraid. The other thing is, though, you can't be stupid, um, meaning that, <laughs> you know, you can't go out there and think that you have all the answers uh, because you don't. And I would tell a young chief engineer to make sure that they are understanding where they can get those answers from and building their network so that they can make sure that they're pulling on all the right resources to get the right answers, make the right decisions and keep the team moving forward. If anybody thinks they're gonna come in, especially in a complex business like this, and they're gonna have every answer, they're they are so wrong, Jim, and they're gonna fail miserably, right? I don't pretend to have the answers. I'll tell you what I do have. I have a network so strong that the answers will be had very quickly. And I would tell a young chief engineer to, and those two fronts, spend your time building your network and getting the right um, people to be a part of your network. And then again, don't be afraid. That's good. That's really good advice. If I sort of flip that question around and ask what advice you would give to an organization uh, that's looking for, uh, you know, potentially uh, successful chief engineers, um, what what advice would you give them? What should they be looking for? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is something that we struggle with at Ford. As you know, I've talked to you about this in the past. I mean, I think that you can, in a short amount of time, determine uh, if someone has what it takes to be a good chief engineer. And, you know, an analogy to that, Jim, would be it's like a singer, right? I mean, you can have somebody stand in front of you and ask him to sing a few notes. And within a short amount of time, you're going to very quickly determine if they can sing or whether they can't. Now, that doesn't mean that that singer doesn't need coaching on you know, on their falsetto or on their whatever, like that, okay, yes, there's things that you can refine and you can coach and teach, but if they don't have the raw talent to sing, they're never gonna sing. I don't care what you teach them, right? So it's the same thing like a chief engineer. I truly believe that an organization would need to go out and they need to look for those traits that we talked about. They need to be honest about whether somebody truly has all of the things that we've discussed innate in them. And then if they do, if they just possess all those raw skills and talents, then you can turn them into a, you can coach them and mentor them into a, a really effective and, and good chief engineer. But if you think you're just gonna grab somebody in the organization that might be a good, a good person or you know, might've been in the company for many years and they're just, man, they do a nice job. That's not what makes a chief engineer. That makes a good employee, but that doesn't necessarily make a good chief engineer. So I think that organization needs to be honest and not biased by someone's personality or some, you know, just because they're nice or just because they've been there for so many years or because they've done the job, they need to look for what I just mentioned, all those things that make someone a, what I think a solid decision maker, leader, chief engineer. And if that person possesses that, they need to then take that person and develop them into a chief engineer. Yeah, and really make a, a serious investment um, in the development of that person once they identify uh, that potential. I, I completely agree. I also think that many of the skills that um, make a successful chief engineer for a product are transferable uh, to larger leadership positions. Uh, we saw it with uh, Mullally. We've seen it with uh, a lot of people. And um, clearly, uh, you were able to, to do that as well. Uh, when you moved on to uh, the Ford Performance Organization from Mustang, um, how did you utilize the lessons that you learned from Mustang uh, to help you lead the team in turning around Ford Performance? 
Yeah. Um, so I basically took the same uh, template that I used and I brought it over there. And so when I went to Ford Performance, the team uh, was not operating as a as a team. Um, they were doing some some good stuff, but they just weren't as effective as they could have been. And so some of the things that I did, you know, when I was running Mustang, like um, I had daily startup meetings with the cross-functional team. Uh, everybody at first thought, wait a minute, I'm going to start my morning with you every day. Yes, you are. And the reason is, is because I would make sure that they left that meeting with the same passion, vision, and understanding of what the goal was and what we were going to do together. And I instituted that immediately in poor performance. And you can imagine it didn't, it went over like a lead balloon when I first said we were going to do it. And as we started doing it, uh, it became their favorite meeting of the day. Um, so that's just one example. But I also, the passion that I brought to for performance was, um, again, contagious. And even though they were doing great stuff, we did even better stuff because we wouldn't accept no for an answer. And we didn't do ugly. And we didn't accept that this was just okay. And so that raised the chinning bar and the entire team stepped up. And um, so, all you know, it's just, it's, I think you just take that same approach and it applies in whatever situation you're in. Uh, and you can, you can rally the troops pretty darn fast. And then if you look at the outcome or performance, I mean, it was a combination of racing and it was a combination of our performance products. And Jim, you know, I mean, if you look at the products we put out while I was over there, I mean, they were, you know, the Raptor, the Ford GT, the GT350, the Focus RS. I mean, all those products came out of that team and they were all hugely successful. Um, if you look at our racing efforts, we went back to Le Mans after 50 years with the Ford GT and we beat Ferrari again. We, <laughs> we took our NASCAR uh, that wasn't, it was struggling. And if you look now this year, we're sitting here right now as you and I are talking, there's eight drivers left in the run for the championship in NASCAR. Five of them are Ford Motor Company. It's incredible. The Yeah, the portfolio um, that uh, emerged uh, from that organization uh, during that time period was, was uh, just incredible. One last question uh, before we have to wrap up our conversation. Um, can you talk a little bit about the development of the Ford GT and, and the whole Le Mans uh, experience? Yeah, the Ford GT development was pretty cool. It was it was an acknowledgement of the company that we were going to go and do something. When you go to, when you decide you're going to go build a supercar, uh, that's that's not insignificant. Uh, that's a big deal. And there's a lot of great supercars out there. And so you know, here we are as Ford Motor Company. We're going to come in and we're going to put a supercar out. So um, we had to be very serious about it, and the the company recognized that. And so they created a a Skunk Works. Uh, approach to the Ford GT because we knew that we had to go fast. We knew that we had to um, sort of break some rules, if you will. And uh, so I was able to lead that team in a very uh, secretive environment. I mean, we we had a, you know Jim in the basement of the of the product development center here. We had only a few of us had access to the to the area where the GT was being developed, and uh, most of the people in the company thought they knew there might have been something going on, but they had no idea what was happening. And that was all by design uh, because we, again, we were going to go fast and we were going to break some rules. Um, and that development uh, was something that uh, I'll never forget because to be a part of a supercar, just that alone in, in your career is, is huge. Uh, and not only were we a part of the supercar, but we were also going to be bold enough to put a V6 engine in what was 
that, that was the only entry into the supercar world. Everybody else was V8 or more. And, and here we are coming in with a V6 saying that we're going to beat everybody. Um, so we took our EcoBoost technology and we were pretty bold with that statement. Along that, while we were developing it, uh, there was the thought that, hey, we're doing this all new uh, supercar. You know, we got another 50th anniversary that's coming up. And that was, you know, the, the quick story is when Ford and Ferrari. So Ford was going to buy Ferrari. Uh, and the deuce at the time here at Ford Motor Company uh, was thought he had the deal done. And then Mr. Ferrari decided that he didn't want to sell to the Ford Motor Company. And that created, you can imagine, a lot of animosity with uh, mm -hmm. the leaders here at Ford. And they were very upset with Ferrari. So they decided to go to uh, their playground, which is Le Mans, and to beat them on their own turf. It took them a couple years to do it, but then they eventually did uh, beat them, and they won four years in a row. And so here we are 50 years later, and the company says, let's go do it again. And this was cool for many reasons. One, because I thought it was pretty awesome that our company was willing to put the effort, the money, and everything else into it to go back onto the world stage and say, we are still here, and our engineering prowess is something that we want to showcase. And uh, it was also very special because going back 50 years later, I'll never forget, Jim, I was standing the day before the race. I was standing uh, in the in pit lane in France on the track, and there was Edsel Ford in front of me just staring off in the distance. And I walked up to Edsel, and I said, what are you looking at? And he looked at me, and he said, Dave, 50 years ago, I stood here with my father and we won this race. And now I stand here with my son and we're gonna try to do it again. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Ford, we're gonna do everything we can to put that trophy back in your hands. And the next day came and history was written because we did it again. That's a fantastic story, Dave, a great experience. I really appreciate you uh, you sharing that. That's, uh, that's actually one I hadn't heard before. So uh, yeah, great story. Um, lots of uh, lots of great discussion this morning. I uh, really appreciate your time, um, and uh, I know I know you're uh, you're a busy guy. Uh, you, uh, unlike me, are still working for a living, um, and so uh, so thanks for uh, for making this time to join me. Uh, Jim, you know how passionate I am about this topic, and and I really appreciate you know our friendship and ability to come on and and share some thoughts uh, with everyone. So thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Designing the Future special podcast series. To learn more about Lean product and process development, visit leanpd.org. And while you're there, subscribe to Jim's monthly e-letter and other LPPD news. Jim Morgan will also be heading up the Designing the Future Summit, which will feature many of the folks you'll hear in this podcast, as well as others. To learn more about this, go to leanpd.org. Thanks for listening.